Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Grace to All with Paul Gray. And I'm just delighted today to have a new friend, but I feel like I've known her for a long time because I've read her first book over and over again. Dr. Sharon Baker Putt is with us today, and she's a professor of theology and religion. I can only imagine she's a great teacher because this book, Raising Hell, really changed my life, as I know that it has lots of other people over the course of the years. And I don't know if you can see this or not, but uh, virtually every page I've got here, I've got yellow highlighted and dog-eared pages and underlined stuff and uh, just tremendous stuff. And she has another book called Executing God. She'll talk about that in a little bit. But as a professor of theology and religion, she has just a lot to offer. And boy, I'd love to be in her classes. But uh, enough said about that. Welcome, Sharon. Glad you're with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you all. Thanks, and I know people have been looking forward to hearing you. Sharon, we always uh, start out on this podcast asking our guests, how has your understanding of God's unconditional love and grace and inclusion, how does that affect you, not just in the classroom when you're teaching, but in your day-to-day life where the rubber hits the road, with your family, with your friends, when you go to a jazz concert, and I'm delighted that you're a, a fellow jazz fan, when you go to the grocery store, how does it affect you? just in your relationships? Well, it's a profound effect, actually, because back before I actually realized the unconditional love of God and what that meant, I was a fundamentalist, stay-at-home mom, homeschool my kids, Christian, who had very rigid views about who God was. And those views were dictated by, I'd say, the Calvinist tradition. But when I went back to school, uh, after my kids went to school and went all the way through from undergrad to through PhD, and began to realize I had been wrong about how I viewed God, and I saw God instead as extravagantly gracious and unbounded in love and compassion whose only desire is for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, it changed me personally from somebody who was really a judgmental, almost mean-spirited person toward those who believe differently than I did, to somebody more hospitable, more open-minded to those who think differently. I feel like now, although I don't always succeed, I feel like now I'm more able to love God and love others the way Jesus has commanded us to. And I realized that if I'm judging people, I'm not loving them, and that's a sin. And it's anti-Christ, anti-Christian. And so it's made me a more loving, hospitable person myself. I hope. I think it has. (laughs) Well, I'm sure it has. (laughs) So you learned that through your academic career, through studying? I did, yes. Yeah. So I would guess you didn't go to a fundamentalist college then. Either that or you read outside. You read forbidden books. (laughs) I did read some forbidden books. 
But I started at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary before they started firing their more moderate professors. And so I studied under some incredible people who questioned things like hell and atonement, the normal theories, and then went to Bright Divinity School, which was you know, way to the left of Southwestern, and then ended up at Southern Methodist University and Perkins School of Theology, where I learned real grace from those people there, um, hospitality toward others, and studied books that weren't forbidden, and learned, you know, you get into the Greek and the Hebrew, and it just changes you. And it changed me drastically. I saw a different kind of God. It makes a big difference, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. It does. So did that change your... Did you lose some friends over that? Did that change your church patterns, your <laughs> the, the groups that you were involved in before? I did lose friends, yes. Quite a few, actually. I lost friends just by going off to school when my kids were in school. They didn't think that was a woman's place to go outside the home and get an education. It was an anti-intellectual tradition. So I lost friends there. I've, I've also... I get a lot of email and mail from people that's very positive and giving me God back again. But then I get the ones that are very condemning. And one I remember specifically, I got a big bundle of tracks about going to hell. And I Googled this guy and it come to find out he had been accused of killing his wife with a hatchet. So fortunately, I don't ever give out my home address so people can't find me. Wow. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> So it could get scary. Yeah, it is. And uh, I don't know. I'm sure that you've experienced this way more than uh, I have just by the nature of your book. But I don't know why. Um, maybe you can help me and help our listeners. I don't know why people are so adamant about hanging on to their view of hell. And I think I reread your book um, uh, this week in preparation. And I think you say a couple of different times there. The The real question is, why would you want somebody to go to a hell like we've imagined? And that, that to me is, that's the real question that I had to answer. And I would think most people would want to come to terms with that. You would think, I see people get more upset about somebody saying there won't be people going to hell or there is no eternal conscious torment than if you said Jesus is not the only way to salvation, which I don't say, but they get more upset about the thought that there won't be people suffering eternal conscious torment than about anything else just about. One of my students came to me and said, my grandmother wants to kick your butt because you don't believe in eternal conscious torment. And I'm thinking, well, don't tell her where to find me, you know. People get really upset about that. And I don't, you know, I offer a couple suggestions in the book, but it's, I still, it's beyond me. We're just not as gracious as God, I guess. That's for sure. I want to be. And with Christ living in me, I'm certainly much more gracious than I was before. I think, and I certainly could be wrong about this, but I, I think just the fact that uh, when we've invested so much of our life in believing something and defending what we believed, and that's a big part of our identity, it takes a uh, a great deal of humbleness to repent, to metanoia, to uh, change our mind about that. And sometimes it's just hard to do. It is. And we wonder if that slides, what else is going to slide, right? If, if, you know, what I've always believed has changed in the area of hell, then what else is going to change? What else is going to slide? And when do we stop down that slippery slope? When does it end? And so it's more fear-based than anything, I think. 
Yeah, which all of uh, religion is, to me, based on fear. I mean, you're a professor of theology and religion, and I, when I use the term religion, which uh, is just my own thought, it's it's our feeling like that we've got to do something to gain and maintain a right relationship with God. And uh, so that's based on fear. And uh, gosh, it just seems so clear to me that perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. I'd been a pastor for 20 years. I'd read that over and over again, and uh, it just never hit me (laughs) until, just like with a lot of verses, never hit me. So do you have the freedom to teach these things, or do you just do comparison things and and let uh, students decide for themselves? How does that work? Well, when I teach an intro to theology course, which I do every semester, at least one, I give students a lot of different viewpoints per topic that we go through. And we usually go, you know, God, Trinity, Jesus, Holy Spirit, creation, humanity, sin. And so I'll fill up the board drawing different views, different doctrines historically that Christians have come up with. And then, and I include my own. I don't often tell them those are my views. Although some of them have read my book. I don't use my books in class yet. I haven't. I feel weird about that, actually. But this new one coming out, I may have to. I don't know. We'll see. But And then at the end, they have a final paper they have to write where they state their own beliefs and they have to support it with scripture and other theologians from tradition. So they have to choose what they believe. And that's what I want for my students. I don't want to dictate to them what they should believe or push a certain view on them. I want them to figure out what they believe, why they believe it, based on the evidence, scripture and tradition. And then that helps make their faith their own. I'm in the business of seeing my students grow in their faith and be more what God has called them to be and will in the future call them to be. And it seems to work. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I felt the Lord saying to me some time ago, Paul, your job is to help people know me and relate to me and hear from me and uh, how petty it would be to think your job was to try to get people to believe the way you do. I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah, I I, I knew that, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hard reality to grasp, right? Wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. I'd love my students to believe the way I do, but I don't, I, it's, I try really hard not to push that on them. Yeah. Gosh, that is so wonderful. It seems to me that may be rare for a professor of theology and religion, but uh, maybe there are a lot more who have that attitude that I don't know about. I don't know. So who do you like to read? What writers have influenced you? Actually, strangely enough, Thomas Aquinas, although I don't agree with him at all, he's influenced me. I'm the opposite of a Calvinist just about, but I read John Calvin. Because if I'm going to totally disagree with him, I have to know him inside and out, right? Of course, the old church fathers, right? The Eastern Orthodox church fathers. I love Eastern Orthodox theology. That's where I land myself theologically. But lately, I've been spending a lot of time in the female Christian mystics, like Hildegard of Bingen, Teresa of Avila, Julian of Norwich. And that's going to be the next book that comes out. I'm researching for that now as the Hmm. theology of the medieval female mystics. Wow. Well, I really look forward to that. I mean, you'd love them. If you haven't read any of them, you'd love them because they're all... Yeah, I've read some. Grace of God. Yeah. yeah. Wow. How would you, for our listeners, well, and for me too, (laughs) asking for a friend, how would you define a mystic? What's your definition of a mystic? 
for me, a mystic, and I haven't actually looked up the official definition, right, of what mystic means, but it's somebody who can connect to God in contemplative ways that are intangible, yet they experience God. So they're, it's more of an attitude. Their, their, their hearts are open and their minds are open to what God may show them through prayer, fasting, your typical solitudes, the spiritual disciplines that Richard Foster talks about in his book. An old book now. And that to me is a mystic. I think on some level we're, we're all mystics. Unfortunately, that word comes with some baggage in the more conservative Christian traditions. And they think it's something demonic or heretical because I've been told, don't use the word mystics, use the word women theologians. And so I've been trying to do that more. Really? But I think in a way we should all be mystics. I mean, the things of God are mystical. God is a mystery. <laughs> a mystic and mystery are attached, right? Yeah. And so as a mystic, we're tapping into that mystery of God, and I love that. Yeah. Gosh, I've had people call me names, but I haven't uh, had people tell me not to use that word. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I like what Paul Young says. He, he says, on a scale of A to Z, we start out on A, and then as soon as we move to B, we think those people in A are just so stupid, and those people in, in those people that are at C, you know, they're heretics. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's it. And, uh, and we, we all relative, yeah, and we we tend to move along in those ways. Yeah. You also work in the area of uh, interreligious dialogue, comparative theologies of religion, and continental philosophy. Tell us a little bit about that, what your interests are, and what that means in, in terms that somebody like me can understand. Comparative theologies of religion. Of course, I teach Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, the different world religions a lot. And I like my students to see, and I research in this area and write as well, that there are a lot of similarities when it comes to the bottom line of what a religion is all about. We're all seeking the same thing. But we do so in different ways, theologically and practically. And so I like to compare similarities and differences. But really, the similarities to me are quite profound because every single religious tradition, bottom line, would agree with Jesus's teaching on love God and love others. The thread that's common that runs throughout all of those is love of God and love of others for all the religious traditions and trying to be one with God. Like Jesus prays for us to be in John 17, right? He prays that we'll be one with God like he is one with God and we'll bring God glory. All the religious traditions are seeking that same thing in very, very different ways. That's just interesting to me. Why is that? Why is bottom line the purpose and the ethical command the same to love, just to love others and love God and draw nearer to God? That's just interesting to me. I don't have any conclusions, really. I mean, I do, but nothing I can say. This is what it is. Well, I would say it's because Christ is in everyone, and we're made in the image and likeness of God, and it's Christ drawing us to himself, and he is love. That's right. And that would be my answer, too. But I can't remember the name of the organization, but I interviewed the other day a guy named Martin Brooks, who's in Louisville. 
and he's the director of an of an organization that specifically connects Muslims and Christians and just gets them together for meals and things in the park where you do stuff together and just to get to know each other, build bridges. And uh, he told me that in his understanding, obviously there's the 1% or less or whatever of, of any religion that are really whacked out and whatever. But the majority in his experience, and I haven't had a lot of experience, but his experience with Muslims along the line of what you were just saying, I mean, they're after the same things we are. They want to love God. They want to love each other. They want to make sure that they have a, they have food on the table and their kids can get a good education and that they're safe and, uh, you know, that they're going to have health care and they, I mean, we're, we're all generally looking for the same things. And when we build on the things that are commonalities as opposed to going to somebody and say, well, I want to tell you off the bat that you're wrong and I'm right and let's be friends and, and let me tell you just how wrong you are. And, uh, what, what a difference it makes when you have the kind of attitude that you talked about you have just love people that's it and that draws the love draws people it's a lure yeah uh, it sounds like that he's doing it is and uh, they're in different countries and 15 cities in the united states and wow. i love the internet and social media because we can find out about these things that we didn't know before right i think i probably first read your book in maybe 2015 or something like that i started on this journey in 2009 and i'm so naive but i thought i was the only one i thought there's nobody else who, I mean, I, I've never met anybody. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously thanks to some books, but then thanks to the internet, I find that there are just pockets of people everywhere and it's exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. I like to think of it, maybe this is arrogance on my part, but I think it's a new movement of the spirit that in pockets all over the world that don't know about each other, the same theology is rising to the surface. It's, it's interesting. It's, uh, Phyllis Tribble writes this book about the great emergence and how every 500 years there's a reformation of the church. Mm-hmm. And the last one, of course, was with the, the Protestant Reformation, but now it's been 500 years and it's time for another one. And I think this might be it, I hope. Yeah, I think so too. I've heard other people say that. And uh, gosh, it's exciting to be a part of it. And uh, It is, yeah. Gosh, this time is really going by quickly, and and uh, it's about time to wrap up. Uh, hopefully, if we can do this again, Sharon, we can talk about that emergence and these little pockets around in your new book and uh, whatever we else we'd like to. But as we prepare to finish for today, tell everybody again the name of your two books, where they can find those, and the name of your upcoming book this December. Okay, um, Raising Hell, which you showed everybody, right? Right. R a z i n g um, Hell, and then Executing God is another one that came out in 2014. And those are under the name Sharon Baker. So now I go by Sharon Baker Putt. So the new book coming out in December with Fortress Press is a nonviolent theology of love. And that's under Sharon Baker Putt. And you can get all of these books on Amazon.com. Great. And I would certainly encourage people to do that. And I'm looking forward to getting your second one, which I haven't read, and the new one when it comes out. So, Sharon, thank you so much, Dr. Sharon, for being with us today. And hopefully we can do this again. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share your heart with people. Well, it's a pleasure. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening to another edition of Grace to All with Paul Gray. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All. 
where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.